With Capella University's FlexPath learning format, you can earn your degree online at your own pace and get support from people who care about your success. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. When it comes to listing your home for sale, everyone and their mom has advice. Oh, honey, who's going to want to buy this place on a cul-de-sac? It's literally a dead end. But for professional advice, a REMAX agent actually knows best. Let's start with a neighborhood analysis. I've been seeing lots of buyers looking to move here. REMAX is the most trusted name in real estate. Visit REMAX.com or download the REMAX app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Based on 2022 BrandSpark American Trust Study. Each office independently owned and operated. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show. Today on the James Altucher Show. What does it mean to write a good thriller novel? What does it mean to write a twist where no one's going to guess where the twist leads to? So Brad Meltzer, who sold tens of millions of copies of his thriller novels, he has a new book coming out, The Lightning Rod. And he comes on to talk about all sorts of things about writing. If you have any interest at all in thrillers, writing, movies, comics, listen to this interview with Brad Meltzer. You know, in comics, what, you know, stories have a three-act structure, act one, act two, act three, basically, right? There's beginning, there's a middle, and there's the end. And when I went to work for DC Comics, they said to me, so much of comics are about act two. There is no act three. There's never, there is no end. Which, as a novelist, I'm like, I can't do that. That's why my comic stories are always self-contained, beginning, middle, end. But for the most part, they want Superman's going to go forever, right? So you're never going to end. But, but wouldn't, wouldn't an episode be, like, let's just take the Superman TV show from the 50s. That always had a beginning, a three-act structure, a beginning, middle, right, because they Right, ne- but they never had an arc over a whole season. They were just a 50-minute episode. That's yeah. absolutely right. But now you don't want to watch an episode of The Flash where he fights a villain and the next week fights a different villain. You want to have a full 22-episode arc. And that 22-episode arc, we all know now, as Netflix figured out, when you do 22 episodes of anything, you're just... You're, you're milking half the episodes in there because they're never going to fit what you want. It's what killed the X-Files. It's what kills you know, something like Lost. You know, like you're just eventually trying to put up with network demands of give me 22 of them. Whereas Netflix is like, give me, give me your solid best 12. It, it's true. Like I used to, like, like with Lost, for instance, I used to try to figure out fairly quickly which were filler episodes. Like they, there was no real, maybe, there might be just one plot point that would extend the story, but everything else was just filler. And then I would just not watch those because I was binge watching. So you, you can't you can't waste too much time on fillers. That's the thing. That's the truth. So we're talking about the lightning rod, of course. What's the official publication date? March eighth. March eighth. And but I do want to ask though, what what is you know you've worked on so many comics. What are, what's your favorite superhero show? My favorite superhero show. That's a fair question. Um, I definitely love Peacemaker. For now, I don't know. I that mean, one. in terms of modern, oh, Peacemaker was great on HBO Max. Uh, James Gunn basically doing television. They took a you know a film director and writer who crushes in the movie theaters and said, you know what, we're going to do a TV show. I thought Peacemaker was great. I thought, I mean, we were talking offline before we started about you know those early seasons of The Flash were just really fun because they just you really felt like special effects caught up uh, with with the TV shows. But it's hard, you know I actually think TV shows are really hard for this genre. I do. I think they're. What are. about like um like kind of these shows like heroes, which are not quite comic book style, but are superhero style. The funny thing about heroes, so heroes, what no one realizes they were written, they were comic books. You know, the two, two of the writers were friends of mine on, on heroes, uh, Michael Green and Jeff Loeb. They basically both wrote for a Smallville and then wrote in comics. Jeff wrote more in comics than anything else. Um, you know, and, and two of them are two of the best writers in the genre. And, you know, I remember watching Heroes and being like, oh, I know what they're doing. It's an homage to, you know, this is an X-Men issue. This is a so-and-so issue. I remember that storyline and talking to them being like, yeah, you get it. But it was, that, that to me was actually America's first taste of a comic book genre without realizing they were getting comic books. Right. But that was, those were comic books. 
Yeah, and then there were. It seems like there was a lot of knockoffs of heroes. That there was like alphas, and then there was of like course, then there was like, it worked. You know, ironic takes on heroes. Like I forgot the one that's on Netflix now. Um, the boys, like the boys. I love the boys. The boys is is Eric Krimke crushing it. He's an amazing writer. Did Supernatural for many years, and now is uh, I think. And the boys comic was spectacular. Was you know Derek Robertson and Garth Ennis killing it. Do you think new writers now, rather than getting into, let's say, the thriller genre like like you did when you started writing, do you think they're going straight to TV? Because, I mean, like, take take a show like Travelers on Netflix, you know, time travelers are coming back from the future to change things so they could save the future. It's like a good idea for a series, but it would have been great as a novel as well. But you don't see, I don't see stories like that in novels anymore. I just see them on TV. You know, I think I think two things have happened. You know, one is... You know, in, in the comic book world, someone once described comic books for DC and Marvel that the comic books themselves, forget about television and film and everything else, that, that comic books were the R&D, right? It was the research and development. That's what comic books were. They figure out what works. And then TV and film says, oh, you did 100 issues. These are the five best and these are the other five best. We'll take these. Hmm. And they took them. And, that, and if you look at the films, I mean, I'm speaking to you the week before, days before the Batman comes out. And people are already buzzing with, is it going to be year one? Is it going to be this story? What is it going to be Darwin Cook's ego? Like, what's, what are they taking from to help them stitch together this movie? Because every movie, whether it's Endgame or even Spider-Verse and Spider-Man, was, was taking from some storyline that was R&D in comics and then either improved upon or built upon or expanded upon. But... But that, so that's always the setup of the way comics have, comics have worked. Um, I think what you're seeing now, to your point, with, with novels, there are spectacular things that are coming in novels. It just takes, the, it takes Hollywood a couple of years to find them. I mean, you're saying, oh, I didn't see it, but that's because you just saw Hunger Games, even though that was many years ago now. But, like, you know, it's, in, it's not like it comes, Hunger Games had three books out before they had the first movie out. And so it takes Hollywood a while to kind of catch up on it. So the lightning rod, which is sort of a sequel or kind of as a sequel to the the story you started in the escape artists, you know, same characters. And, uh, you know, I know it's hard always talking about novels because we don't want to give away too much of the plot. I will say it's, it's a riveting book. I'm so glad I got an advanced copy and you have, right on the front is quotes from James Patterson and, and Lee child. This is, According to James Patterson, this is your favorite. This is his favorite Brad Meltzer novel. So, I hope he likes all the other novels as well. <laughs> My wife was. We were very happy with that quote. When James Patterson gives you a good quote, that's the one time you get to impress your relatives. Yeah, because everybody. Uh, well, do do you know him? Have you? Did you call? Him I know him. Say, him. I've met him. It's not like we hang out. Um, but I know. You know. I know. Just like I know Lee. I mean, again, I. I. The one thing that's good about thriller novelists, especially, is it is a tight community. And whenever you get a bunch of writers together, it's just free therapy because all of us are, are basically sit by ourselves all day long. And then when you get us together at Thriller Fest or some other event or book expo, it's the one time where we get to say like, hey, what's working for you? Or hey, did the publisher do this? Or hey, it's how this publisher doing? And so yeah, that's always fun to me. I, I mean, I'm a nerd, so I love that. I love getting to meet Lee Child or James Patterson, whoever I've been able to meet over the years. In fact, my first, the first book, that I ever wrote. The Lightning Rod celebrates my 25th anniversary as writing uh, thrillers of my first published book. And the very first book before it came out, I wrote letters to John Grisham, to Scott Turow, and to David Baldacci, who were like the three big writers at the time who were crushing it in that genre. Specifically the legal thriller genre. They were right. I, my first book was legal thriller. These, obviously, Lightning Rod isn't, but the first book I wrote was a legal thriller. So I wrote to the three legal thriller big honchos. And I was like, listen, I'm, I'm 27 years old. My book's coming out. I don't know anything. Um, can you help me? And my phone rings one day and I pick it up and it's John Grisham. Hey, it's John Grisham. How can I help you? And it was, this was pre-internet. This was pre-go on Twitter and DM someone. This was pre-hey, look, I mean, I literally wrote a letter and put a stamp on it and sent it to wherever we sent it at the time um, with no connections. We didn't know anybody. We, it was literally a cold call. And all three of them got back to me and reached out to me. And that is, you know, one, a sign of what nice people they are, but also just a willingness to 
help those of us who are young and starting out. So to this day, if you have a book and it's your first book, go on my Twitter account. You will see all the time. I will be tweeting for all these people who it's their first book and I will always help them and tweet out their book. Well, what did John Grisham tell you on that call? He told me, you know, he was, one of the things he told me, he told me advice that other authors gave him. And I'm like, who's giving you advice? But I remember he told me at the time, he said, listen, and this is when they were making a John Grisham movie all the time. They were making movies one after the other, after the firm and the Rainmaker and Matt Damon and Matt McConaughey, Matthew McConaughey and all these people. And he said, listen, whatever happens with your book, whatever Hollywood does with your book, it'll all be gone. And that book will always be on your shelf and no one can take that away from you. And I still give that advice to people who get all worried and sweaty and you know, worry about, oh, what if it gets a bad review? What if this bad thing happens? What if no one buys? And I'm like, that book will still forever sit on your shelf. And that is, it is to this day, great advice. Well, with this book, I mean, you once mentioned that in an interview that uh, usually there's some, some little story you hear that kind of kicks off the whole plot, that, that kind of inspires the whole story. So what, you know, uh, I don't know how much to give away is sort of a, a military intelligence type of thriller, but like what, what story or idea kind of inspired you to kick this off? It was one of my greatest fears of all time, which is when you hand your keys over to a valet <laughs> and that's how the book opens. Yeah. He hands his keys over to a valet and the valet takes the keys and instead of driving to the parking lot with his car, he hits the GPS button. He says the words, go home. And the car plots a route to the man's home. And now this valet has the man's car keys and the man's house key that's on there. And this is going to be a robbery. He's going to rob him. But when he gets to the man's house, he walks inside and there's a man with a gun waiting. And he realizes this isn't a robbery at all. This is a trap. And when the valet's body goes to our hero, Zig Zigorowski, who's really well known for working on government secrets, he uncovers not just one of the, the government's greatest hidden secrets that the government has, but he also asked the question that really is the whole book is about was what's your greatest secret that no one knows about you? Cause it's coming out. And that I just ruined chapter one of the lightning rod for you, but that's basically the opening. It was my own fear of handing my keys over to valet and always knowing they could just go break into your house. So that's funny. So at some point I assume like you were at a restaurant, you hand your keys to the valet and you start thinking, well, what if he says, go home <laughs> But what if there's, uh, when, when does it start to turn into a plot? Like, like when do you think, oh, but what if there was a murderer there waiting for him? Like, does it start to just feed itself? First of all, I love that you say, you know, one time you go to the restaurant and worry about the valet. Every <laughs> friggin' time I go to a restaurant and hand my keys to the valet, I'm worried about what they're going to see, what they're going to find, what they're going to put. Like, I just, all thriller writers, the reason we can write these thrillers is because we're super paranoid. Right? My job is to sit around and take a normal situation and, and imagine the worst case that becomes life-threatening. So that may be fun for you to turn the pages of the lightning rod and be like, oh, this is fun. I'm, I'm reading that. But that's my life. That's my brain. Like every time I, I was at a restaurant last night and my daughter now teases me. She's like, you hand the key to the valet. I'm, and my family knows, you know, you don't hand the house key. Don't hand that house key. No way. She knows. And, but that's, so yeah, you just, and then you just, you know, I'm looking for a way in, I'm looking for something. And I've learned over time a very simple rule I write with, which is I'm not that special. If, if I'm worried about this or if it's entertaining to me, then hopefully it'll be entertaining to other people out there who have that same fear and that same, you know, oh my gosh, what would happen if that happened? So I, that, that kind of kicked it off. And then the other thing that was really big for me in this one is it's always, there is some level of research that will always come from something and I, I, you know, I do a lot of work finding government secrets. So in one book I did the hidden tunnels below the White House. I did the labyrinth below the Capitol. I've done the secret tunnels that run below Disney World in one of the books. But in this one, I found out that there were 12, there were about a dozen secret government warehouses that the government has all across the country, strategic locations to deal with bioterrorism threats, whether it's Zika, whether it's anthrax, whether it's you know botulism or smallpox or even COVID now, so that if something happens, uh, someone attacks New York, then they're gonna have a push package ready within four hours in New York with the, the antidotes to whatever that is. They have cobra venom stored in one of these warehouses. God knows what that does. Like every imaginable disease, they have everything from you know drugs to get rid of pain to uh, 
incubators, intubators, you know, medical advice, medical devices in these giant, super Costco-sized end-of-the-world warehouses. And they are hidden in places that are right sometimes in front of your face. And I was like, I need to go into that. I need to know where their warehouses are. I need to know what's inside them. And, and so when you're reading The Lightning Rod, you get to those last chapters and you're like, you know, you'll, you'll see you go into one of the warehouses. What's inside there, I won't ruin the ending, but what you see in there is exactly what's really there. I, I didn't make it up. I just described what's really there. And that's the fun of the book. How'd you get into one of them? Well, the funny thing is, is so I'm so slow as a writer. I started researching this book five years ago. Hmm. It was pre-pandemic. So they didn't have any problem saying, come on in. I had unprecedented access. It was back when they were under the CDC. I went to the CDC. I flew to Atlanta. They, I was in the headquarters in the mobilizing unit that watches all the warehouses. It was fine. If I tried to research this book today, I'd never get in anywhere. They're never letting anyone in there now after COVID. So it just wound up being the dumb luck that, uh, that I was able to get inside to go to you know experience them. Obviously, you think about your characters a lot like, you know, speaking of that valet, and I'm not giving away anything here that's not even on the first page, we must really think of what this valet's entire life has been like to get him to this point. I don't want to say he's a minor character because he kicks off the entire book, but we only really see him alive for a couple of pages, as you mentioned. But he's got a whole story. Yeah. You have to, you know, if I give you that plot, I can make up an easy plot that says, oh, look, a guy's in danger. He died. Chapter two. But if you don't care about that character, who cares? Yeah. So I have to make you love that valet in two pages before we kill him. And you know exactly what he fights for. You know exactly who he fights for. You know exactly what he loves and exactly what he wants. And that's the key of every character, at least for me, is you have to know what they want. If you know what they want, you know what they're doing. So again, it's always hard to talk about a novel because I don't want to give away the details of the novel, but I am very interested in process. Like for you... You sit down, you have kind of this kickoff incident. You maybe have a vague idea of what the book's going to be about and what you're going to need to research and so on. But what are the beats of a thriller novel? Like what points do you have to hit when in order for you to say, okay, this is a thriller novel and I did a good job in terms of plot, characters, world building, the whole thing. Yeah, you know, it's funny. When we first spoke, the first time we met, you asked me that question. I, and I never forgot it because you you're such a process-oriented person. I, you, I remember you kept trying to say, like, what are the pieces to do it as if... And, and it's funny. I, I know that there are pieces, right? I know that you can read books like Story. You know, there's, like, books that will tell you how to break down a story in the three-act structure and how to do it and there need to be a twist at the end of Act 2. I, I don't follow any of that. I just don't. My body... My, my internal clock, I'm sure, follows them, but I don't. I don't write by like, well, I've set up the character. I've given him backstory. Now I have to kill him. Now what has to happen? Hmm. Now I have to have twist one. Now I got to do twist one. What happens now? Investigation time. Like, I just don't. I, what, if I, you know, my friend Simon Sinek always, you know, says in his great TED talk, he says, you know, every life is like a bullseye. And the outside ring of that bullseye with three rings is what you do. And you know what you do, and I know what we do, and everyone knows what they do. The middle one is how you do what you do, right? And and for someone who, let's say you're a plumber, or my uncle who's a garbage man, like he knew exactly how to do what he does. You drive around, you pick up the garbage, you put it in the truck, you take it back. But for people in the creative arts, even even sport, how do you do what you do? How do you get so good at basketball? Or how do you write a novel? Like so much of it is just trusting your gut. How do you know when to give give a good pass, you know, make a good pass on a basketball court? Like you just know, like you just trust your gut that this is gonna be a good one. And it's not, it's not, well, someone can't be watching and I have to make sure I have six inches or more, or it just you gotta trust it. And I trust my characters. The key to me for structural stuff is making sure, like I, I've been at this 25 years. If you give me chapter one, if I give you the chapter one I gave you, guy in a valet dies, and I can figure out chapter two, I'll, I'll, I know how to build the boat while I'm selling the boat. I'll figure it out as we go. But that's not a good book for me. Some people it is. For me, I need to know the characters. If I have good characters and you care about those characters, I can do anything I want. You'll follow them anywhere because they're interesting. So 
I will. I remember I plotted in in the lightning rod. The first time you see Nola after the, one of those opening scenes, who's like our kind of like crazy wild child character, she's like this incredible, based on you know real research and 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 these war artists that the government has on staff who paint disasters as they happen. The U.S. Army actually since World War One has had an, a war artist on staff painting, you know whether it's storming the beaches of Normandy, whether it's Vietnam or nine eleven, and I remember going to them and saying, "You're telling me everyone's racing with guns blazing." And you got someone who's racing with nothing but paintbrushes in their pockets. I got to meet that guy. That guy sounds crazy. And they said, you mean her. You want to meet her. It was a woman in real life. And I built my, ca- I remember when I had my first plot, I was like, I'll figure out Nola after, or even in the lightning round. I'm like, I know what, Nola's going to come up later. And no, I finally was stuck. I didn't know what she, I didn't know what to do in the plot. I really didn't. I had that opening scene and I was like, listen to Nola. She will tell you what she's doing. And you can see, I won't ruin anything. You can see that when Nola, when they first chase Nola, Nola gets away because Nola's like, I'm not that stupid. I'm not falling for that. And I just watched her. And I know it sounds totally crazy, but when your characters can take over and you're not plotting anymore, that's when it's most realistic. Is that because you're surprised? So it's a little easier to surprise the reader? I think that's part of it. I think it's also, you know, when you're, you know, the, the guy who did Breaking Bad had this great quote. I'll, I'll never forget, and I'm going to paraphrase him, although I just said I'll never forget it. But he basically said, no one believes coincidences in fiction. You know, if I say, oh, he's walking down the street and the murderer bumps into him, you're like, yeah, because you just said the murderer bumped into the hero. That's never going to happen. But if something goes wrong for your hero, whatever the coincidence is, a car knocks him out of the road, you believe all of that. That seems much more realistic. So the key is is to try and find that that balance that just leaves it feeling completely not. You, you don't want to ever feel the author's touch in the scene. You never, you know, you're watching it when you're watching a movie and you're like, that only happened because the author basically made it happen. But like if 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 some if a character's car is uh, you know driven off the road or some you know a car bumps into it and it goes off the road, I would think that this, that. That's not a coincidence. It's part of the plot, right? Well, and that that's part of the plot. But but think of the think of the that's not really a coincidence, right? But think of if the if I'm if a character's following the bad guy and he's trying to sneak around so and so, and all of a sudden a guy unconnected to either of them um, opens up his window and says, "What are you doing on my property?" and pulls a gun and it has nothing to do with either of them, and that's just bad luck, man. You just picked the wrong backyard to be hiding in. You're like, oh crap! Everything just went really bad and really south really fast, and it just that seems more fun and realistic, at least to me. This is my personal no, preference. That's actually very interesting because I'm going to make an analogy with with business. Let's say you developed a, a product, some new toy, and you showed it to a bunch of your friends, and they all said, "Hey, this is a great toy. We love playing with it. You're going to make a gazillion dollars." That actually gives you no real information, uh, like. So the, the analogy is that only if someone says, I really didn't like this, then you can ask, why didn't they like it? And they're going to tell you something real because there's a reason why they didn't like it. But if, if they, there's a lot of reasons why people say yes. They might say yes because they don't want to hurt your feelings. They might say yes because they want to get off the phone with you and go back to what they were doing. They might say yes for, because they liked it, but who knows? But if they say no... And they're and they're willing to tell you why. That's real information. That that's not fake information. So I wonder, in general, if things going wrong in any area of life is is the way to convey real information. Listen, I, I will tell you when I I have the same like five friends that have been reading my books for twenty five years. Right, we were in from when we're young in our twenties, and the first thing I always ask them is, I don't say, "Did you like it?" That's nonsense. The first thing I always ask them is, what parts didn't you like? That always gives me more. In fact, there's a great saying, I think it's Neil Gaiman. I'm gonna, uh, it's basically like when you ask people what they don't like about your stuff, they are 99% right. When you ask people how to fix what's wrong with your stuff, they're 99% wrong. And he says it a little bit differently, but I think the saying is the exact same, which is the one thing we all know is when it's crappy. And, and I always say to any upcoming writer, and I think this for nonfiction, for fiction, for anything you work on, and I think it for business too, is you give your idea to 10 people 
you'll get back 10 different answers of what they think about it, but you have to find the, the 5 to 10% that they all have in common. And that's what's really wrong. Because some people just be like, it's too fast. Some people are like, it's too slow. It's all Goldilocks problems, right? Like, it's too big. It's too small. It's too rough. It's... But when you hear, you can kind of read, you have to learn to read between the lines with what's wrong. And you'll hear like, oh, they don't understand why Zig is doing this. They don't understand why he's risking his life. Like, they can't all verbalize it. But that, when you see what they all have in common, you know, no book is ever perfect. You just got to find what's really wrong with it and then fix that and then fix it again and fix it again. And I go through, you know, seven, eight drafts of a book easy. And I've been doing this 25 years and I'm still doing that many drafts of a book because I'm just constantly trying to make it so that when you get to the end of the lightning rod, you go, oh crap, I'm so surprised by the ending, but I'm so mad at myself. I didn't guess it. It was right in front of me who the bad guy was the whole time. Yes, it's totally true. Airbnb has changed my life. If anything, they have made my life so much better. Like I used to live in Airbnbs. I I lived in over 100 or 200 different Airbnbs over a three-year period, and I loved it. I I became a really good guest of Airbnbs, and I got to know lots of hosts. So when I initially owned a house, I, of course, the first thing I thought was, I'm going to turn my house into an Airbnb because I travel a lot. So why leave my house unused when I can make a side income by letting others Airbnb my house or come to stay in my house as guests? And having my own Airbnb or, or being a host for Airbnb has allowed me to do just that. And I've met other hosts. I've actually spoken at Airbnb's host conference. I think it was in 2017. I met so many just nice hosts. It's a great community. And I love, you know, turning my own home into an Airbnb. Like I'm traveling to Austin next month. My home's going to be an Airbnb while I'm away. And I'll stay in an Airbnb. I'd rather stay in like a three-story house Airbnb than in one tiny hotel room in, in the middle of Austin during South by Southwest. So listen, while you're away, your home could be an Airbnb. Many people host on Airbnb, but there are people who are just letting their house sit empty, who've never thought about it or didn't realize their space could be an Airbnb. Hosting can easily fit into your lifestyle and is a great way to earn some extra money. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, then you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Daylight savings time is starting up again. Okay, podcast is over. That's all you needed to know. But why do we have uh, daylight savings time? Answer, to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting your clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day that initial, when we initially start daylight savings. But if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There's only one way to do that, ZipRecruiter. And right now you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to find qualified candidates for you. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100 plus job sites so you reach more of the right people. This is such a brilliant idea for a business, and ZipRecruiter did it. So ZipRecruiter's smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. I've used ZipRecruiter particularly as a potential employee, and I still to this day get messages every day. James Aldacher, would you like to apply to be VP of Entertainment at NBC or whatever? So there's just nonstop emails. Like I got five or six emails today because of because a year ago I signed up for ZipRecruiter. So spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Hey, listen, men's health is important. 
men act all cocky and like they don't need anything. But the reality is, as you get older, there's some things you need. And it often feels like we're too busy to take care of our health problems. Like I'd rather do anything than go to the doctor or the dentist or the pharmacy or whatever. But now you don't have to waste your time if you use HIMS. HIMS, H I M S, HIMS is changing men's healthcare by providing simple and convenient access to science backed treatments for erectile dysfunction, hair loss, weight loss, and more. The entire process is 100% online, so you get a new routine of improving your overall health faster. Jay, you listening to all this? Yes, I definitely got to use HIMS for now. Not on. that you need it, you're, you're young and healthy. James, I'm 35. You, you're getting there. You might, you might need it. Who knows? But if prescribed, your medication ships directly to you for free and indiscreet packaging. No insurance is needed. You can manage your plan on the HIMS app, track progress, and learn more about your conditions and how to treat them from leading medical experts. Start your free online visit today at HIMS.com slash James. Could you imagine that there's a whole section just with my name on it? HIMS.com slash James. That's how I how much I am representative of the kind of person who needs hymns. That's HIMS.com slash James for your personalized treatment options. HIMS.com slash James. Prescriptions require an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate. Restrictions apply. See HIMS.com slash James for details and important safety information. Subscription required. Price varies based on product and subscription plan. How much of the overall arc of the story do you know in the beginning and how much is kind of, like you say, given to you by the characters as you're writing? Yeah, I always know who the bad guy is. That's the mm -hmm. one thing I know. Mm -hmm. I know who the bad guy is because if you're doing a whodunit, you need to know who to leave out of the room while the done-it is happening, mm -hmm. right? I need that. Otherwise, I'm just making it up as I go. What I do make up as I go is kind of the way to get to the end. Uh, I did one book where I plotted the entire book out. And I was like, I got the whole thing. I'm just going to literally, instead of plotting 50 to 100 pages, I'm going to plot all 400 pages. It was so horrible creatively to work on that book. It was like playing paint by numbers. I was just like, okay, chapter two, chapter three. It was just, it was no fun. And I realized that at least for the fun for me is, um, is not knowing the end of the story. Why would you ever want to know the end of the story? And, and I would think that, I always kind of think, that an audience, whether they're readers or viewers or listeners or whatever, they're like an x-ray machine. So if you know how the story is going to end or every detail along the way, you can't really hide it from them. They're going to be able to figure it out. Readers are, are far smarter than the authors they read. <laughs> I really believe that. And I think that it's so interesting. Like I will take, I'll have my plot and I've never nailed it on the first try. I will tell you, I, I always take the plot and, I, and I'm usually like, there's one part where they'll say, uh, that doesn't seem like that was a fair game, you know? And I, I firmly believe if you read my book and you guess the ending, like you're as a reader trying to guess the ending, I'm as a writer trying to fool you. If you guess the ending, you win. If I guess the ending, I win, as long as we're both playing fair. So you didn't flip ahead, and I didn't just make it the butler who appears on one page and just, you know, shocked it out of nowhere. So I'll always have friends who will like read it and be like, I don't know. It kind of came out of nowhere. So I'll put three more clues in. Mm -hmm. And then the next person who will read it, who I trust, will say, I saw it coming a mile away. I'll take one of those clues out. Mm -hmm. And then the next person will go like, oh, that was awesome. How did I not see it? And it's, I know it, it's literally like that. You can put in three more clues or put in six more clues or take out two more. And you, it's like a recipe. You find the exact right spot. And we've all seen it. You know when you've seen that thriller where you go like, oh, that's the killer. It was right there on every page. How did I not guess it? But you're totally at the same time shocked. And, and it has to be in a good thriller, the perfect balance between I played fair as a writer and put all the clues there and you still didn't see it. And on the one hand, you shied away from the question on process for the whole book, but what is a clue? What is a legit twist? Because I would think twists are hard because you have to put something in that where you know you're twisting but you also have to have the skill to realize the reader is not going to realize this is a twist. Yeah, no, no. And, and that's what I mean. Like, I, I, I know that 
I know that I'm doing something that is structural in that way that your brain needs, but I don't, I don't do it and say, I need a twist here. I literally just go like, man, I've been in this part for a while. I want to change, but I don't, sometimes it's on page 30 and sometimes it's on page 70 and sometimes it's on page 170. Like it just, you know, it's like the Supreme court definition of pornography, which is, you know it when you see it. Like I know that moment when I see it, where my characters are like, they're stuck and I don't know what to do. And, and, and yes, I, I, I know I need to know the twist is coming, but sometimes I surprise myself with it. Like I remember, I remember I always say, you know, the phone always rings when you're in the shower. I remember physically being in the shower and just going, Oh crap. And my wife's like, what? When I got out and I'm, I'm like, I got it. I got it. This person, this character is working with the bad guy. It, this is an inside job. So I knew the ending with the bad guy was, but now I had, I didn't even realize, oh my gosh, this would be a great twist. What if this character that I invented three months into writing the book is actually on his side? And now I got to come up with a backstory for that and why that works. And that's the fun of writing to me is figuring my way there where I'm entertaining myself. And then once you know that, like, let's take this example. Once you know, oh, this guy's really on the side of the bad guy, how do you in turn now conceal it from, from the reader because you're so aware that this guy's a bad guy and now you're going to start filling in his backstory. That seems to me difficult. It, it, that's the art, man. That is where, that is where you have to like, again, if you, uh, what you just described is like me saying, me saying, James, don't think of pink elephants. And you're like, I can't now, I can't do anything but think of pink elephants. Like you have to, in your head, just know, don't treat him like a bad guy, write him like a good guy but give them enough, you know, and you'll see it sometimes. You'll see like just that little sprinkling. And I see it when I, when I watch TV shows. I will watch TV shows and movies and well, it'll hit some point and, I'll, and there's something about, I'm like, I said to my wife, I know who did it. She's like, don't say it. Don't say it. Like, and I'm like, I know who did it. And then we'll get to the end of the movie and she's like, did you guess? And I'm like, my way is so much better. You know, like I will constantly be rewriting everything I'm in trying to make it that twisty way, but so that's what's, way an, what's an example of a, of a good twist in let's say popular movies or fiction or TV, you know, that you could describe, like you could, you looked at it and you could say, okay, well done. I mean, I think my, my one of my favorites of all time, um, is, is the murderer in Scott Turow's presumed innocent. I was going to ask you about Scott Turow's pr- presumed innocent. So yeah, and I that that's is one of the great, yeah, that's, that's one of the great twists. Um, that stuck with me. I love that. I love that. Because I would I not have guessed that one. I recommend anyone watch that movie. It's like 30 or 40 years old or whatever, but. Yeah, and uh, I'll challenge you and say, read the book. Okay. The book is 70 times better. Like that is a perfect book. And. So how do they keep people from guessing that, but still at the same time, I guess the, the trick is people can't guess it, but once you realize it, it's obvious. That's it. That's what, and, and you know why? Because the person who did is the bad guy in that book has all the motive in the world, but you also love that character. That's the magic. It's right in front of your face. I think that um, I think I think the movie Juno has a really amazing twist. That you think that you know we all love Jason Bateman. He's the best. You all hate one. You know Jennifer Garner looks like the bad guy. She's the fussy one, and then they twist it, and you're like. Oh, how did I not see that coming? That's so obvious. It just feels natural. Um, and your biases get the best of you because you're told to like this cool guy and hate the stuffy one. And so I, I love those. I love when, when your archetypes of how you view the world are turned on their head. Um, and I think you just have to, I think you have to play fair. I think if you just, you know, again, if you just make it, oh, you know, what, what was the other one I just saw? But let's look at that quote that you just said. So the arc, archetypes somehow are twisted. Like somebody seems like, uh, uh, the good guy or the good woman. And, you know, is playing a role that we've seen in society many times. So we, it's baked into us that we really must think this person is, is good. And then that's the twist. Uh, she, she or he turns out to be not good, but I would think now people reading thrillers or watching thrillers on, on movies, they know that they know to think that the one you're supposed to hate is not the bad guy. Oh Yeah. I mean, that, that's the thing. You're, yes, the answer, you, the answer to your question is yes. That's exactly, again, to your, to your first question. I, I never mean to shy away from it. It's just really trying to find a fair answer. I, again, I, I can't 
you're absolutely right that people guessing are 50 billion times better than they were 20 years ago. They just are. We're yeah. savvy. We've seen more stuff. We've seen it done and redone and redone. But here's a perfect example. So the, my favorite book of all time is Watchmen by Alan Moore and yeah, Dave yeah. Evans. Okay? Brilliant. My son, who's 13 years old, now 14 years old, just read it. That book has been ripped off and redone and been through the zeitgeist for 30 years and no one's been able to outdo it. And when you get to the ending, my son literally said, oh my gosh, how did I not see it coming? And it's so good. That is one of the best endings and bad guys you'll ever find, ever, ever, ever. And why? Because it just was perfect. Not because it was like, it's not just taking, oh, I'm told I'm this person's good and now it's going to be bad. It has to be far more, that's just a black and white, you know, two-way view of it. It, it just, now, now what I do as a writer is I know you're going to know that. So my guy who's extra nice is never going to be the one who everyone thinks is the bad guy. It's got to be the guy who's a little extra nice, but not so nice. Like, and you just have to build a better mousetrap. And we are, as thriller writers, always trying to build a better mousetrap because we got to fool you. So like in, in recent either novels or movies or comics or, or whatever, where, where's a good example of, of a twist that, that you thought, well done? Um, let's see. Um, I'm trying to think of something that's much more common recently. Um, like, uh, or you can even pick like Lost or something like that. Yeah, no, no. I'm, I'm just even. I'm trying to think of something that we can actually talk about openly because everyone knows it. So I'm just trying to think of like even like in the Marvel world. I think that. Um, oh, I mean, again, this is hardly a big one, but it was. It's, it's a blatant, obvious one. Is is uh. The uh, the guy in Black Panther who works for the CIA, the guy who's in Sherlock and oh, yeah, Fargo, yeah. like that guy comes in. You're like, here's this little nebbishy guy coming into Wakanda. He's obviously the worst, right? We hate him by his existence, and he winds up being awesome. And they totally turned it right. Or or looking at something. I think a really good one is um is what's her name? Uh, Thanos's daughter is uh. Uh, uh yeah. gosh, I forget her name. Middle ages hit me. Um, a Gamora. No, not Gamora. The the sister, the other sister. <laughs> oh gosh, I'm playing. And now every every one of my friends is literally texting me right now, being like, "Dumbass, how can you forget her name?" Um, hold on, it's good. I have to stop Nebula. thinking about it. Nebula, thank you, Nebula. Oh my gosh, what's wrong with me? So Nebula is, you know, the right-hand person to Thanos. It's the, you know, the biggest of the big ending. But who saves the day in the end? They literally earn that entire turn for her. Mm. They earn it. They make us love it. They make us love her. And even Gamora to some level is like kind of a bad guy and in league with the bad guys when you're But So you have to earn it. And when you earn it, it's spectacular in its payoff. And, and, and that, that's you, what I love. When, when, you, when you realize later on in the writing that, okay, this person is going to be aligned with the bad person or the good person or whatever in an unsuspecting way. Do you then backfill so that there's little clues along the way and, and, and you make sure that they're not too obvious? Like how would Yeah, no, that's what you do. You literally then, then you play Goldilocks. You, you, you know, a little too much, little too le- little less, just right. Like in the case and- of, of Nebula, like how, uh, could, or, or let's even take the case in presumed innocent, like, which again, is so many years old that, I don't mind spoiling it if, if, if you feel free to spoil it if you want, but how would you sprinkle in that or how yeah, did you I, sprinkle I think, in? I think you, again, I think you stay true. I think in, in those examples, they stay true to the character. I think that, um, or even, you know, as a perfect example, black widow, black widow, here's, here's even better. Let's go even more common. Black widow and Hawkeye were both bad guys when they were introduced mm-hmm. in the comics. They earned over time, like that loyalty that made us be like, they can't be bad guys. They're the best. Scarlet Witches introduces a bad guy in Avengers too, mm. right? And she comes in now as everyone's favorite. Oh, we love Wanda. WandaVision is all the best. I mean, but they earned it. And you earn it by like letting that character be that character. And you can see that when Wanda misses her love of her life, the great grief that she has undoes the universe you're like, oh, that's totally reasonable too. You're not a bad guy. You're just a misunderstood person. I think that Killmonger in in Black Panther, I, it, I'm just using these movies, one, because I'm a comic book person, but two, because I really think that um, 
they're just known by the average, you know, just about everyone, um, is one of the things you have to do is you earn that and you, and you follow it. So what's an example where it's been done poorly? What's an example where it's been done poorly? Um, well, one I never, you know what? I can think of them. I don't like bad mouth in anyone's work, but the ones where the same ones you hate are the same ones I hate. Like the ones where you're like, that's ridiculous. She would never do that. Or that's ridiculous. He would never do that. I mean, that's, it's always the same. So, so with stories that are like, uh, sequels, like this one's a sequel. Do you start thinking in terms of like, uh, like right now, do you start thinking about the next way you can use these characters and, yeah, I mean, listen. I never think of them as a sequel. Like, I, there's, a, you know, someone said. Yeah, you're right. I, by the way, I didn't read the Escape Artist. Which right, you didn't read the Escape Artist. You read, read this, right? Like, it was no, no issue. Right. James Patterson said, "This is my favorite Meltzer book." Like, I need to know that someone's going to pick this book up because he said that, and they're never going to have read anything before this, and that's okay too. Yeah. And so I purposely layer in everything you need. You can start scratch with it, like you did. Um, but I do think of what the next one is. The, the final scene of this book obviously very clearly has in mind something else coming, the same way the final scene of the last book has something in mind. And if you showed up for all of them, great, you get rewarded. And if not, it's okay too. I'm going to fill you in as soon as you start. Well, how do you think you've improved over the past 25 years of writing these? I mean, I don't, you know, I think the thing that I improved at, if I improved on anything, is just, you know, realizing that you have to always be improving. I mean, I really think for a while, I spent a little time, you, you can very easily start to believe you're really good at something just because you're selling lots of copies. And that is not a marker of being good at anything. That's just a marker of your sales. And I, I had at my kind of 20 year anniversary of doing this was like, great, I can keep doing this and they'll hopefully pay me to do this. But how do I actually get better after 20 years of doing something? When you're doing something this way, how do you actually improve? And the only way to do that is to kind of check your ego out the door and say, you know, which of these books were the best and which of these books were not as good. And I'm going to do my best here, figuring it out. And that's what I tried to do. I literally looked and figured out, okay, these were, these were the three best books, I think, maybe four best books I've ever written. Now, what do they have in common? 20 years of doing this, what do they have in common? And I realized I was like, oh, th they have the best characters. That's why these books are the four best. Like, without a question, I was like, don't start your next book until you have Zig and until you have Nola. And when you have those characters, then you can start the book. And I think that these books are so much stronger because I, I understand these characters so well. And I think improving, I don't think I'm, I got any better, or any smarter, or any wiser, or any, but I, I, I was able to just not think that I was great. And therefore I found some room for improvement. I'm just, I'm trying as hard as I can. So, you know, during this pandemic, a lot of people, they were basically you know, as we know, everybody didn't go to work. They stayed home. Many people started pursuing their, their childhood interests or, or what they always really wanted to do. So what would you say to someone in their, you started in your twenties. What would you say to someone now in their thirties, forties, or fifties who wants to be a thriller novelist? Cause they love thriller novels and they always wanted to have time to write one. And now they do. What would you say? How does, how to start? What should they do? I would say, great. Well, you're welcome. You're in the club. Like that's, I honestly, like, I, I love the guy. Remember the show Frasier, the father on Frasier. I saw some, this could be TikTok, you know, BS information, but it said like, he was like, you know, 60 something years old when he started acting. Mm -hmm. Great. Awesome. Like, I love that. I don't think you have to be, you know, if anything, the thing that hurt me when I was 20 is I didn't have the breadth of experience to write about. I just had what I lived up until I was 27 years old. Um, I think it's great. I think it's fantastic. I think the only thing you have to do is it's it, writing is about persistence. You know, I mean, I can tell you how to ride a bicycle. I can say, hold the handlebars and balance your center of gravity and go two miles an hour. And, you know, and then you'll ride the bicycle and you can, you know, James, you'll write all down all the, the things of how to do things. But until you get on that bike and pedal, you will never learn how to ride a bike. Mm -hmm. And that's how writing is to me. Like I can tell you, oh, you know, make a good character and then make sure you have a couple of twists and make sure you know where you're going and whatever other the rules are. But until you sit down and type and get on that bike and pedal, so to speak, you're never going to write a book. So you just have to write a book and write one page a day. And if you write one page a day, you'll have a book in a year. You absolutely will by the numbers. 
the problem is, is what most people do is they go, oh, I'm, gonna, I'm not writing my page. I'm going to write two tomorrow. I'm going to get really good tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, screw it. I'm going to write three on Wednesday, and then it's all gone. That is, that is a good point. So, you know, last question. I remember one time we were talking, I think it was, I think it was you. You have a better memory than me, by the way, I've, I've noticed in this, in this conversation. But uh, That's what writers do. You understand. We have to use everything so we remember everything. So uh, you, you were telling me about um, there was a, uh, you, you, you did a little bit of either work or consulting, whether paid or free, I, I don't know, for the government where they kind of got thriller novelists and other novelists or other storytellers to basically imagine worst case scenarios for the government and, and brainstorm. And I was just curious, is this still like an ongoing thing? Yeah, they did ask me. I did it for free. They asked me for free. Um, they asked a bunch of thriller writers. To, they asked me to come in and brainstorm different ways that terrorists could attack the United States. And my thought was, if they're calling me, we have bigger problems than anybody. Thinks. You think <laughs> the country is screwed up right now? I mean, um, but I, it was right after 9-11, all kidding aside. It was after 9-11. They would pair me with a Secret Service agent and a chemist, and it would give us a target like New York, and we would destroy it in no time. And it was incredible. Um, I don't know if they, I, I know they stopped doing it. I don't know if they started doing it again. But after 9-11, when you have terrorists who will take planes and use them as missiles into buildings, you need what they called out-of-the-box thinkers. They, they just were like, no one can think of that. That's like something that like monkeys banging on typewriters would come up with. So we're going to get monkeys and typewriters. And we were the monkeys and typewriters. And we just were like coming up with the craziest things. The thing that was I don't know if I told you last time was um, that they called me back to do it a number of times. And when they called me back, they would give me the place that they were looking at. And that's terrifying because it may be a place where my family or friends or someone was, you know, it was like these big kind of group events. And I'm like, do they know something I don't know? Or are they just role playing here? And, uh, but it was amazing. It was, it was incredible to work on. And I, I loved it. I loved doing it. And I felt honored to do it. Did they ever um, react to anything you said, like, you know, change some policy or uh, build, thing build that warehouses? That, the thing that, yeah, it's so mm-hmm. funny. The only thing I can tell you is they never told us if anything we were on was right or not. So you had no idea. They never told us who would say The only thing I knew is they invited me back and everyone did not get invited back. And the funny thing was, is if you look up the story in the Washington Post, the only, I'm the only person that's quoted in it because they told me that I was the only person, everyone was sworn to secrecy. And they said I was one of the only people who actually kept his mouth shut. So they let me be the one to go public with it. And they let me, like, I was the one who the Washington Post interviewed for it. Because they were like, you're the only one who followed our friggin' instructions. So that's why it's so hard to have a conspiracy in the government, because everyone just wants to talk about it. That's funny. Well, well, look, Brad Meltzer, your new book, The Lightning Rod, excellent, was riveting to me. I, like I said, I'm really glad I had an advanced co- copy. I feel privileged. Uh, you got Lee Child quoting it, uh, James Patterson Lee Child says Nola Brown is one of recent fiction's all-time great characters. Trust me, this is a terrific, compelling, unputdownable thriller. So it's true, and I encourage people to check this out. And Brad, once again, thanks for coming on the podcast and uh, you know teaching us all a little bit more about what you do. I appreciate it. Always good to be back. Thank you so much. Thanks, Brad. 